Hello and welcome to Critical Observations in Pulmonary Medicine, led by Chief Medical Officer of the American Lung Association, Dr. Albert Rizzo. The views of the speakers are their own and do not reflect the views of their respective institutions or Consultant 360. Hello and thank you for listening today. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Leah Backus. Dr. Backus practices at the Stanford Hospital and is Chief of Thoracic Surgery at the VA Palo Alto in California. She trained in general surgery at the University of Southern California and cardiothoracic surgery at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her surgical practice consists of general thoracic surgery with special emphasis on thoracic oncology and minimally invasive surgical techniques. Thank you, Dr. Backus, for speaking with me today. To begin, will you please briefly tell our listeners how you were drawn to thoracic surgery and what your current role at the Stanford Hospital in California involves? Boy, I was drawn to surgery even as a middle schooler. I just thought it was pretty cool. The human body was like a puzzle, and it seemed to me that surgeons were the ones trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together and take them apart and reconnect them and that sort of thing. So sort of the technical aspects of surgery, at least theoretically, as much as a middle schooler can can conceptualize it, were intriguing to me. But it wasn't until, and in fact, I actually wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I, I, I didn't know a whole lot about the body. I didn't have any physician mentors or anything in my family or in close proximity. So I sort of made this stuff up as I went along, asking people along the way. But it wasn't until my third year of medical school that I decided that surgery was really going to be the move for me and specifically not neurosurgery. So I went ahead and applied for and matched into general surgery. And then it wasn't until I was a second year general surgery resident that I saw my thoracic surgery physicians and, and went in the lab and that sort of thing. So exposure is everything, honestly. Exactly. Yeah. Great. Great. Well, we're glad you ended up where you are. And and what do you currently do at the Stanford Hospital? Your role oh, there? So, yeah. So at Stanford, I mean, like most academic places, you know, cardiothoracic surgery is broken down the cardiac and thoracic and congenital for the most part. In terms of our three divisions, I'm in the general thoracic surgery division. And therefore, I don't operate on the heart anymore, which is great for me. And But I operate at Stanford and I operate in practice at the Palo Alto VA taking care of our veterans, which is a nice mix of things for me in terms of those two very different and yet the similar practice settings and patient population. So the lion's share of patients that I see have lung cancer, some esophageal cancer, and then I, as sort of my side interest, also do some chest wall surgery and a tiny bit of mesothelioma because Mm. there's not very many people that do a ton of it. Right, right. Well, that's a great background to have our listeners know what you'll be talking about today. So I wanted to begin our discussion talking about lung cancer screening. Um, we all know that the uptake of this potentially life-saving procedure in that high-risk group identified by the USPSTF uh, guidelines remains at a low level, recently quoted at about 5 to 6% nationally. I know you're involved in trying to raise awareness and move the needle on getting more individuals screened. Um, best practices for the implementation of lung cancer screening include the input from a multidisciplinary team. Uh, can you describe the role as you see it of the thoracic surgeon on this team? And as a follow-up, do you feel it's a role that many of your colleagues embrace? 
Yeah, I, yeah, I think that, I mean, lung cancer screening is so important and it's so much still in, in its infancy that we have to embrace all models and recognize that all models don't necessarily fit all practice settings and all community settings and that sort of thing, just like any screening initiative. So I think it's really predicated on the local expertise and ability to, to do what needs doing. I, I don't think, and to that end, it doesn't have to be spearheaded by a pulmonologist. It doesn't have to be spearheaded by an oncologist or radiologist or a thoracic surgeon for that matter. It just has to be someone who's knowledgeable enough in the area to, and has the bandwidth and time and effort to put into really creating the program. So, I, you know, there are many models and they're not, there isn't one that's a singular winner. Here at Stanford, as in many places, this is multi disciplinary approach. The lung cancer screening program here has gone through several different iterations, but for the most part, it's been led by thoracic surgeons. And I would say kind of historically, it was our pulmonologists and pulmonary colleagues, which was, which was fantastic and even set up some mobile scanning units from more remote areas, et cetera. But most recently, the pendulum has shifted now towards one of my thoracic surgery colleagues who's really been doing the heavy lift on it. I do think that the presence of all of those folks are important. You do need to obviously have a radiologist for sure, but a chest radiologist is really accustomed to reading these images and is fully vested with the American College of Radiology screening program and whatnot. And then of course, your pulmonologist is important because you catch a whole bunch of other things that aren't necessarily lung cancer, especially. And the thoracic surgeon, I think, adds an element of practicality as well in terms of what are the next steps and potential interventions and putting that all within the appropriate clinical context, which is sort of setting the threshold for when to intervene on someone with a more invasive approach. Great, Great answer. And aside from the role on the multidisciplinary team, how do you see your role as far as the surgeon, the shared decision-making process? I mean, to me, that's a concept that's almost ingrained in surgical education because surgeons help guide patients through decision processes involving weighing the benefits and risks of, of surgery, as well as alternative treatments that may be options for them. Um, your thoughts on, on the shared decision-making? You're right in that it's very much sort of woven into the fabric of a surgical training to be able to guide patients through making some of these difficult decisions. I mean, obviously, other medical providers do do the same thing, but oftentimes the surgeon surgical discussions are surrounding interventions with a much higher stakes, acutely so. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we are somewhat trained to do that. I do think that it requires a whole lot of nuance in terms of how it's done, weighing the risks and benefits, et cetera. And really when you're talking about an intervention such as a biopsy or a surgical resection, for instance, that conversation has to happen with the surgeon or with the practitioner that's actually doing the intervention. Sometimes we can get a little bit of ahead of ourselves. Like for instance, in my world, I, I, I see lots of early stage patients who are often weighing the pros and cons of surgery versus radiation treatment for their primary cancer intervention. And I don't, I, I stay in my lane, so to speak. I don't try to venture too far into the realm of describing and detailing what their course of radiation would look like because that's not fair to the patient. 
and I don't want to introduce my biases, you know, so I try to limit my conversation for the most part to the area that I have expertise in, but I always offer patients the option to go and speak to the radiation oncologist directly if they have very specific questions. So it is a nuanced process. And I do think that the surgeon is well positioned to be able to, and well trained to be able to do that well. Great. Um, During my training in pulmonary medicine, much longer ago than I'd like to admit, case conferences with thoracic surgeons usually involve some decisions around surgery or no surgery, low bar resection for cure or no resection. And almost always patients had mediastinoscopies. Can you speak to the changes in philosophy of low bar versus wedge versus segmentectomy, as well as the changes that have occurred in the technology over the last several decades? And here I'm thinking about the development of minimally, minimally invasive and robotic techniques, as well as the extension of bronchoscopic techniques with EBUS and navigational capabilities. Yeah, gosh, there's really been an explosion. And I mean, and you yourself know this as well in terms of advances in techniques and technologies and in the people who are actually performing them as well. It's much more heterogeneous group of folks. It certainly does not fall exclusively under the realm of pulmonologists or um, or thoracic surgeons or even interventional radiologists. There's a whole lot of crossover. So when it comes to the diagnostic part of things, I say that that, is, that pendulum has shifted heavily in favor of bronchoscopy, and other minimally invasive means of acquiring tissue. And that's really important piece when we're talking about the potential for new adjuvant treatments and whatnot and uh, and genomic sequencing, et cetera, that um, having tissue ahead of time to aid in your decision-making is really critical and sort of just puts more emphasis on the fact that we need to have tried and true techniques to do that. So, I mean, bronchoscopy, robotic bronchoscopy, image-guided bronchoscopy, et cetera, has made tremendous strides in that in that area. And we have a fantastic relationship here at Stanford with our interventional pulmonologists. They're really incredibly skilled. And having them, you know, I can't recall a patient that I've sent that they weren't able to obtain tissue from. They're just that good. And, and having that information going into surgery is incredibly useful. You know, at this point, we don't do mediastinoscopies for every patient. We were doing mediastinoscopies for patients who were high risk for having occult mediastinal or for clinically suspicious mediastinal nodes. And then now, for the most part, we send those patients for EBUS. Now, if they have a negative EBUS, but they still had a very high clinical suspicion. We do so follow that with a mediastinoscopy. However, if your EBUS is, is able to secure the diagnosis of your mediastinal staging, then, then that's really helpful and will, you will have avoided a mediastinoscopy for that patient. So um, it's pretty, pretty neat to have that in our armamentarium. And then, of course, the minimally invasive approaches that we have to surgery have just exploded as well. I tend to do the lion's share of, of my, well, all of my minimally invasive lobectomies or lung resections at all are robotic at this point. There's no data to report superiority over robot of robotic over VATS or VATS over robotic. 
they're they're pretty equivalent in the in the appropriate hands of a skilled surgeon. But either one of them are are incredibly beneficial to most patients to minimize the length of stay and length of recovery, particularly when you're talking about someone for whom surgery is not their only intervention and treatment that they may need to go on and get adjuvant therapy it's important that they have an expeditious and yet safe surgery so they can move on to the next stage of their care. And as far as the philosophy of, you know, low bar versus wedge versus segmentectomy, are there more lung preservation philosophy than before as far as trying to attain cure? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that that's still an evolution, honestly. And segmentectomy, for the most part, is thought, is thought to be superior to wedge resection for, for various reasons. Wedge resection is not, not really considered sound oncologic surgery and offers very little advantage over uh, stereotactic radiation. The main benefit of segmentectomy over wedge resection or SBRT is the fact that you get more to more lymph nodes harvested for both therapeutic and diagnostic purposes. So I wouldn't equate a segmentectomy to radiation, but wedge resection, it gets really difficult to tease those two apart in terms of outcomes. We do do salvage surgeries as well, but for the most part, I'd say if you took a national sample, still by and large, lobectomy is still considered the standard of care, but that is certainly up for debate and currently being debated in several ongoing trials. Aside from the the role of the CT scan, are there still other imaging uh, developments that may be helpful to the radiologist or the thoracic surgeon, uh, such as nuclear medicine uh, scans? Do they help at all? In this setting? Uh, Yeah, our nuclear medicine scans, as in the PET scanning, are pretty pretty standard at this point to assist with the clinical staging of a patient. It would be considered substandard care for a patient with lung or with lung cancer or suspected lung cancer to not have had a PET scan to complete their clinical staging. There are also some advances with regards to the way in which PET scanning is done that can help discern metastatic lesions from others. For instance, prostate, you know, PSMA PET scan. PSMA, prostate-specific PET scan, which can be really helpful in terms of guiding your decision-making to uh, towards extensive surgical resection, for instance, mm-hmm. if you're knowing, if you know that you're dealing with a metastatic lesion versus a, a primary lung cancer, that's incredibly helpful information to have up front. So yeah, it's absolutely considered standard care. So one of the main drivers for lung cancer screening is to shift the stage of lung cancer diagnosis to an earlier stage, which is potentially a curative state. Unfortunately, in clinical practice, many patients with metastatic stage four disease present. And it's now recognized that this is a heterogeneous group. And despite all being characterized as stage four, some patients will have high disease burden, whereas others will have isolated metastatic lesions. And I believe in the 2017 update, the TNM staging, there was a reclassification of the metastatic disease into M1A, M1B, and M1C because they had different median survivals. Can you describe this classification and how, if it has at all, changed the thoracic surgeon's involvement and approach to stage four disease? You already somewhat started to describe it, right? Whereby the M1A is considered, in general, Metastatic disease is not really considered to be surgical. It's not really considered to be resectable because 
not necessarily because of this the, the metastatic lesion that you're looking at, but because of what it's indicative of, right? That you're now in a systemic cancer situation and you really require systemic solutions and treatments to address it. But M1A would be a patient with malignant pleural effusion, pericardial effusion. In general, those are not considered resectable. Surgery plays a role only in palliating those patients for the most Mm -hmm. part, but the palliation themselves can be quite meaningful in terms of preserving life, ironically, and and preserving quality of life, of course, first and foremost. And then you have 1B and 1C, which are uh, distance dites of disease. Oh, in the 1A, there's also, I believe, the contralateral lung metastasis, which is a little bit of a controversial area. So if you've got a patient who has, say, bilateral lower lobe nodules, is that patient really considered to have M1 disease? or are they considered to have synchronous primary tumors? Mm. And that gets really nuanced. And we spend a whole lot of time talking about those patients and trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. Usually those patients are going to undergo, they shouldn't have any other sites of disease, first of all, so that those two areas need to be the only sites clinically that are observable. And then we painstakingly have to stage them, stage their brain with dedicated brain imaging, and then stage the mediastinum to make sure that there are no mediastinal nodal disease. It is uh, not unheard of, but certainly less common and less likely for a patient to have a contralateral metastasis without any other nodal involvement. So if we see two isolated tumors that are contralateral to one another, but there's no evidence of either hyalur or mediastinal lymph nodes, we would give that patient a benefit of the doubt and not classify them as M1 and instead classify them as synchronous stage one tumors. Right. And, and if you do that right and correctly, those patients actually can do quite well. And then you have patients who have like distant metastases like M1C. And again, the role of the surgeon is really distant extrathoracic metastases like bony mets, liver mets, adrenal. The two distant sites for which there is exception in terms of still offering surgery potentially for patients would be brain mets. So isolated brain mets or isolated adrenal, occasionally sometimes isolated liver, if they can be eradicated with local ablative therapies, either CyberKnife for the brain or any sort of ablative or resectional interventions on the liver and or adrenal. Bony metastases are difficult to address. They usually are just treated with systemic therapy with spot radiation to symptomatic metastases. Great. So with lung cancer patients living longer uh, due to earlier stage diagnosis and certainly the explosion of treatments with targeted therapies and immunotherapy, follow-up very often finds recurrent disease at some point. Can you talk about the role of thoracic surgeon in helping direct a surgical intervention at some point in time for these cases? For recurrences? Right. Yeah. I'd say the surgeon's practice in general is heavily weighted towards early stage disease and contradistinction to medical oncologist practice, which is heavily weighted towards advanced disease. So in the thoracic surgical practice, most of our patients are not going to recur, which is great, but there also heretofore had not been a whole lot of recommendations with regards to any adjuvant therapies. And so their oncologic home was with a thoracic surgeon because they never see an oncologist, they're not getting any systemic treatment, and so they live with you. 
for the duration of their surveillance. And ongoing surveillance after initial treatment is for lung cancer is my passion, if you will, is where I've done the most of my research, et cetera. So we're still trying to define, honestly, what's the best way to do the surveillance on these folks. I have a strong bias, and then I feel like the biggest threat that they face is not necessarily the recurrence. And certainly once you get after two years, it isn't. It's more of a second primary lung cancer, mm-hmm. particularly for patients who have ongoing risk exposures, for those patients who may not have quit smoking or have ongoing environmental exposures, et cetera. Obviously, whatever it was that set the patient up to develop their initial lung cancer is still in place, and therefore they have lots of lung parenchyma that is at risk. So, so your surveillance after initial surgery is what, yearly, six months, or what? What do you define as your surveillance? I'd say most people still follow the NCCN guidelines, which actually, which heretofore had been this one size fits all thing, which was everyone just gets a CT scan every six months. Then it was every six months for the first two years. Most recently is every six months for the first three years, followed by annual after that for two more years. But it's also broken down further by whatever was your primary treatment, if it was radiation versus surgery, whether or not you had chemo. So starting to introduce some of the nuances there. These are all based on these recommendations, however, are all based on consensus mm-hmm. and kind of the preponderance of the of the literature that is out there, which is very sparse and not necessarily very high quality either. So it's not the best evidence and then therefore the recommendations aren't. Right. They're only as good as the evidence they're based upon. So. That's right. right. Uh, so you may have touched on this next question a bit earlier, but uh, all the goal, the goal to, uh, for lung cancer certainly cure. We know that can't always be the case. And uh, can you tell us how the thoracic surgeon can sometimes help palliate the patient with advanced disease? And and here I'm thinking about what you mentioned earlier, the pleural effusions. You know, particularly how do you, what's the best way to manage some of these malignant pleural effusions that tend to recur in patients? Yeah, the malignant pleural effusions, they're interesting because I'd say that we do not see the vast majority of them, which is, I I feel it's a little bit, uh, a bit disheartened by that because the patients that we do see often have been instrumented several times before they actually wind up coming to see a surgeon. And I'm not sure why that threshold is so high and uh, whether that threshold is being set by the oncologist or the pulmonologist or the primary care doctors or who it is that is actually kind of treating the malignant diffusions with repeated thoracentesis or not versus kind of having a much more expedited track to getting in to see a thoracic surgeon or, or a pulmonologist or an interventional radiologist, whomever it is that can actually palliate the effusion. Two main ways of palliating one would be, or three, thoracentesis, which often needs to be repeated. The other is obviously with indwelling catheter, a tunneled indwelling catheter, like a pleurex catheter, mm-hmm. which the patient can accommodate drainage at home. And then the most definitive is a pleuridesis procedure. And that's the, the main benefit, if you will, of a surgeon intervening in these cases is because we can do any or all of them. So if it really should just be managed via thoracentesis, we're able to do that. But we're also able to take patients to the operating room, evacuate the effusion completely in a very controlled setting, assess the lung for its ability to re-expand, and then either place a pleurex because the lung is trapped and therefore they're going to have a chronic space, or do a pleuridesis procedure such that they wouldn't need any additional interventions in the future. So it's kind of one-stop shopping. That's what I tell patients. So 
but you recommend they see the surgeon earlier rather than later. Well, I do because it can actually kind of work against you, right? So every time right. you do a thoracentesis, if there's a little bit of blood that gets in there, and even if there isn't, you can still set the patient up for starting to form adhesions. And now you've got loculations. And so then your repeated thoracentesis attempts are going to be less likely to succeed. And then that makes for more difficult surgery later when we're trying to create one singular, recreate one singular pleural space to either place a catheter in or to try to uh, create pleuridesis. So So with the, the changing landscape of lung cancer care because of screening, improved therapies, and certainly longer survival, as well as the development of some diagnostic and therapeutic technologies we mentioned earlier, what are some of your thoughts on what is on the horizon for thoracic surgery and lung cancer? I think we were continuing to exploit the ways in which we can do things minimally invasively to help expedite recovery. We had, there's a lot of movement in the enhanced recovery after surgery pathways or ARIS pathways to help get patients back and out of the hospital and back to their lives or to their next step in their treatment process faster and in better shape so that they're able to tolerate some of the more chronic uh, treatment interventions that may be down the road for them. I think that there is going to be a whole lot more collaboration with our oncologists when it comes to considerations of who needs to be treated uh, neoadjuvantly. Heretofore, that's always just been those stage 3A patients for the most part. Those are our main shared patients when it comes to neoadjuvant therapy. For adjuvant therapy, our stage two patients are always referred, but we really didn't have to interact with oncology upfront for anyone other than the rare stage 3A patient. And nowadays, not only are we interacting for the 3A patients, but we're also interacting for the patients who have even 1B disease for some indications, right? So stage 1B and stage 2 also can be considered. And that's going to require a big paradigm shift in terms of how thoracic surgeons think about their patients and need to consider delaying surgery and how it is that we nuance that conversation with our patients who otherwise come in to see it. When you come to see the surgeon, for the most part, you're ready for surgery and wanting surgery. And to have someone say, hang on just a sec, actually, we're not going to do surgery right away. Even though you're resectable right now today, we're going to, we're going to roll the dice a little bit and give you this immunotherapy. And hopefully it's going to work great because it's worked great in lots of people. And then we take you to surgery. What if it doesn't work great? Well, it's a tough discussion. I'm sure. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So Well, I really want to thank you for your time today. Are there any other parting uh, thoughts you have? No, I'm just, I'm glad you're doing this. I think it's a fantastic effort to get more information out there. Dissemination of knowledge is key, particularly when it comes to those really low uptakes of lung cancer screening Mm -hmm. in our country. We've got to do better. And that's, that's across the board, let alone our most vulnerable and marginalized population. So Absolutely. we've got a lot of work to do to get yeah. up to like 70%, like for mammography and colon cancer screening. Right. Well, again, thank you very much for your efforts today and also for your efforts in raising awareness. I know you work with the Lung Cancer Roundtable nationally and look forward to seeing you again in those venues. Yes, absolutely. For more pulmonary and critical care content, visit our website, consultant360.com.